This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 69 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. So is there too much Trump on TV or too little? Should we freak out about the stuff he says or just do what Republican office holders and candidates are doing and they're so practiced at doing this kind of exaggerated rolling of their eyes? I looked at this a bit back in, in November, I think it was, in episode 56. I sort of came down on the side of taking him seriously and literally when he made what sounded like policy pronouncements that posture obligates me to check in on a couple of his latest ideas. One is notable for both how far out of the mainstream it is and how potentially dangerous it is if Trump did become president, but also how it may reverberate today even before he would potentially get in. We played that cut at the top, the cold open as we call it. It was Trump speaking in South Carolina this past weekend and telling the apocryphal story of how he, Trump, would encourage Russia to attack a NATO partner if they didn't pay what he says they, the NATO partner, owes. Before we go into the impact of this and how far to turn up the freakout meter, let's get some facts out of the way. The conversation never happened. No leader of a large or small nation was ever told this by Trump. It's also not the first time he said something about fellow NATO members being deadbeats or something like that. There are some direct payments that go to the NATO budget, but it's a pretty small amount, like 3 billion euros amongst all the different countries. It's about 0.3% of the cost of what NATO does. The conflict arises, though, about how much NATO countries agree to keep spending on their own defense so as not to have NATO become the defender of first resort. Anyway, NATO wants each member state to spend about 2% of its gross domestic product on defense, and Obama and Trump both press NATO to have more of its members hit that, hit that goal. And more have. Four countries in 2014. I think it's seven today. Another thing we should say is that it's the Senate and not the president that would decide whether or not to live up to a NATO treaty. That's, would be, that's what would be involved if we took Trump seriously with what he says. But this collective defense provision of the NATO agreement, Article 5 as it's called, it states that an attack on any member shall be considered an attack against them all. This has only been activated once, and that was after September 11th. And to change it, you'd need to follow the same path as ratification of a treaty, a two-thirds vote of the Senate. So this is the way that people like Marco Rubio, the leading Republican on the Intelligence Committee, and Lindsey Graham, the leading Republican in the Let's Go to War with Everybody caucus, this is how they brush off their leaders apparently disavowing our NATO obligations. Don't overreact, they said. He's just talking again. Here, take a listen to Rubio, 
The first voice you'll hear is, is the interviewer, Jake Tapper. You've endorsed Donald Trump. Are you comfortable with him suggesting that he wouldn't defend NATO countries and actually he would invite Putin and Russia to invade them? Well, that's not what happened, and that's not how I view that statement. I mean, he was talking about something, a story that he talked about happened in the past. By the way, Donald Trump was president, and he didn't pull us out of NATO. You know, in fact, American troops were stationed throughout Europe as they are today. They were then as well. But he's telling a story, and frankly, look, Donald Trump is not a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. He doesn't talk like a traditional politician. And uh, we've already been through this now. You'd think people had have figured it out by now. So there you go. But this is the tricky part. Perhaps Rubio is right. We should learn not to take him seriously. The bromance between Putin and Trump is almost the stuff of satire at this point. But could it be that a lot of other people in the world might look at this statement, look at the polls, look at our congressional, our, our congressional, our Congress stopping aid to Ukraine and even Israel, and hopefully that changes, and wonder whether our, our superpower, as a superpower, our ability to deter has been nerfed. The world seems pretty worried. Trump's comments drew fire from several governments and even the typically diplomatic NATO Secretary General, Jenna Stolenberg. He said, any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U.S., and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. That's his quote. This is what the don't take Trump seriously camp seems to miss. This is 2024 now. Russia has invaded Ukraine, bombed its cities and civilians, talked about using nuclear weapons, threatened Finland and Sweden for seeking to join NATO. If you're a Putin or Xi in China who may be mulling a land grab of his own, how does all this sound? How would their actions be impacted if they looked at this situation seriously? In 10 months, Trump could win. This week, a solid minority of the House and Senate have held up aid to Ukraine. Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk and others are racking up big wins being propagandists for Putin. They don't need to have a lot of deep insider information about our country to make the correct call that the United States is not too sure that it's committed to the defense of its friends. The Wall Street Journal editorial board gnashed its teeth at the latest Trump craziness. Here's what they wrote. The U.S. should be having an election debate over the growing dangers to U.S. security and how to counter them. Instead, we have an incumbent who has presided over the collapse of U.S. deterrence and a GOP frontrunner who dotes on dictators. No wonder Mr. Putin is looking so confident this, these days. That's what the Wall Street Journal wrote. Look, I know that institutional strong defense Republican voices like the Journal are hard to take seriously anymore. But the idea that Biden presided over the collapse of our deterrent power is really to say that as forceful and unambiguous as Biden has been in his support for Ukraine, we are still suffering from Trump's bending over for Putin. And Republicans, and more importantly, Trump's followers in the country, have now taken to parroting their leaguer's pronouncement of how little we should care about what happens in Ukraine. We saw how quickly congressional Republicans changed their tune on immigration reform when Herr Leader decided he wanted it dead. We see it day by day on support for Ukraine. One by one, previous Russia hawks pull back and roll over as Trump supports his pal Putin. So we take it seriously. Editors who have to hack through the daily barrage of crazy shit Trump says raise this to front page news, which for my younger listener refers to the top of what used to be a booklet printed that had the summary of the day's events. Anywho, editorials are running. Foreign leaders are being asked to comment. Democratic senators and never Trumpers are either tisk tisking or banging tables. But the damage is already done. We may know that a serious, tr that 
Trump isn't a serious person leading the world stage or doing the hard work at home of explaining U.S. interests beyond the money involved. Trump is a useful idiot to Putin and she, even when he isn't in office anymore. But what of the things that he reads off a teleprompter that sound like proposals of an actual policy or a law he would pass or an executive order he might sign? These are getting sprinkled into his speeches every so often, and they raise the question again and again about what to make of them. On one hand, his record shows in office that he neither has the attention span or the ability to read and learn new things and is super helpful, you know, to have those skills when you're making policies as president. On the other hand, just as his campaign seems to be in more competent hands this time around, I imagine he will do a better job of hiring people who know that what they're doing in a second term. I talked about this some in that episode back in November on the pod. It is pretty crazy, but arguably the leading candidate for president this year is running on a platform of a giant regressive tax, and no one seems to care about it. Not the Democrat, it's Trump. Trump did a fairly conventional rollout of a campaign promise to institute a 10% across-the-board tariff on all imported goods from everywhere for everyone. Not a random throwaway brain fart that he often focuses on, but this sounded like someone that his campaign thought of it seriously for him and told him to say it. I think this one also falls in the category of a thing we should take seriously and literally. So let's give it its due. It's a bad idea with a big caveat. First of all, let's define our terms. A 10% tariff on foreign imports is a tax on every American who buys anything made, picked, or assembled overseas. A strawberry, an iPad, a pair of pants, whatever. Trump is proposing that a 10% tax be added to it all. The money would be collected by the government. Yeah, like a tax. Now, there would be some people who would benefit. Matthew Inglesias, who wrote a great substack about this, pointed to the example of coffee. We all drink coffee. All of our coffee comes from overseas. Our prices go up as taxes get collected on our coffee. But a little bit of it comes from Hawaii. They'll be able to raise their prices 10% and keep the money for themselves. Distortions like this are all over the idea of across-the-board taxes. Another is that since we already have a 25% tariffs on a lot of Chinese imports, by putting a 10% on every other country, you are, in a way, lowering the impact of the China tax. Chinese products won't cost 25% more than, say, Vietnam. There will only be 15% more now. And then there's the obvious problem of the regressive nature of it all. Value-added taxes, if not carefully constructed, wind up being the most regressive possible way to collect revenue or affect industrial policy. Okay, maybe the poor can hide from the tax increase on coffee by not drinking coffee, but what of all the foodstuffs we import? Bananas being more expensive is not going to mean a whole bunch of American banana plantations popping up. It's going to mean higher costs for the banana tax. There are also cases where the Trump tax might help grow our industrial base, perhaps. Stephen Miller, the Trump guy who was out defending this, argues that it mirrors policies we had in the 18th and 19th centuries, times when we were building up our industrial base. But today's economy, where we import car parts and export car parts, we import cars and we export cars, it makes it much harder to argue that a blunt object like an across-the-board import tax might help some workers in some cases but it would probably just raise the cost of our products here and overseas where we need to sell them. It's just a bad idea. But it's an idea, and we should debate ideas. Would this law bring low-wage apparel jobs back to places like South Carolina? Uh, maybe. 
a substantial 10% tax on jeans coming from everywhere else might lead someone to turn back the clock and build a textile plant in the South. But what of the high-end jobs making airplane parts or Mercedes-Benz that also get made in South Carolina? Won't making those things more expensive cost jobs in that state? The answer is yes. Now, I said there was a caveat, and this is it. If we want to engage policies that allow us to collect revenue, to do things that eliminate the effects of poverty and inequality or expand our health safety net, I'm okay with conversations about broad across-the-board tax increases. But I don't think that's what Trump has in mind. Maybe someone should ask him one of these days. And we'll be right back with Ask Anthony Anything. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on Ask Anthony Anything, another correction slash clarification. In addition to taking questions here, I also like to clean up any mistakes I have made in the past. A couple of weeks ago, Curtis Lee and I were having a little debate on left versus right, and the issue of immigration once again raised its head. This time, in the form of a video that had gone viral of a group of supposed immigrants that were in a fight with a New York City cop. We both agreed it was abhorrent and that the bad guys should be arrested and prosecuted. Now, without getting off the path here, I should point out that since that, a fuller video has come out that comes to light that shows that, that the first one was edited and left out parts that make the situation less clear. But let's get into a conversation about what would happen if and when the arrests and prosecutors were reportedly uh, with, of these reportedly undocumented assailants. It became a conversation between me and Curtis about what it meant to be a sanctuary city. So we're going to listen to a tape here, and we pick it up as Curtis is decrying the fact that despite the protest by Governor Hochul that these guys should be deported, she won't be able to do it. But right now, Hochul herself is saying, deport these 12 thugs who beat up the cop. Well, how do you deport them? You can't deport them. you got to do it through ICE. So ICE is right in the middle of this. Both all these issues, both with Texas and Mexico and here with New York City, obviously with the guys who are still on the land, maybe on their way to the Hotel California. If so, if someone, but just to make sure everyone understands the law, if someone gets arrested here who's undocumented, they, they get turned over to ICE. The only thing about, about. No, they that, don't. Sanctuary City only does not, it does not protect someone who's committed a crime. It only protects people who are dealing with the police in all kinds of ways or dealing with the fire department or dealing with all kinds of things. And that they, and if the police find out that person's not to me, they don't turn them in. But if you're a criminal, of course you get no, turned No, they don't. They do not. Of course you do. do. So I was partially wrong, maybe a bit. The fundamental point is that the idea of something being a sanctuary city is a reaction to the way that it used to be when INS officers, uh, what are now called ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Officers, used to interact with local law enforcement. Local cops and investigators and prosecutors, everyone involved in law enforcement, want every resident to feel safe and encouraged to come forward when they've witnessed a crime or been a victim of a crime themselves. So cities frequently make it a policy that they do not inquire about someone's immigration status And if they learn that someone's undocumented, they just don't turn them in. This dates all the way back to 
the Ed Koch administration of the 70s and 80s, and every mayor since has continued the practice, and it goes on other places as well. As well. Now, this phrase, sanctuary city, has become used in all kinds of deceptive and dishonest ways ever since. It doesn't mean that undocumented immigrants get any special benefit or any special entitlement. And it certainly doesn't mean that they get away with crimes. But was Curtis right about what happens to people who are here without documentation after they're sentenced to prison and are released? Well, for one thing, they serve their time. Let's be clear about that. So here's the clarification. If they serve le uh, less a, sentence, a sentence of less than a year or they're awaiting trial and they're held by New York City on, on Rikers Island, under the changes to the sanctuary city laws passed in the de Blasio administration, they would not have to be turned over to immigration officials. That tr that's true. But any sentence over a year, they would be held by the state in a state prison and in theory would be handed over to the feds if they wanted to deport them after their sentence. So I was partially wrong. But this issue is sure to come up in a big way if Donald Trump is reelected and does what he says, the nationalizing of state guards and local police departments to institute what he calls the largest mass deportation in American history. So stay tuned for that. So I want to thank uh, Eric and Ricky for their help with this podcast. This was the 69th uh, edition. Also, I should point out that today is the five-year anniversary of when I was released from prison. And um, I want to express my great thanks to all of you uh, for supporting me in this kind of this new chapter in my life. You know, there is a story of uh, Jonah in the belly of the whale uh, that Jonah takes God's uh, uh, order to go to one place and goes to someplace else. A storm comes along and he is, finds his way through the belly of the whale back to where God wanted him. I really do believe that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. This journey has been a fascinating one. And one of the things that's made it so interesting is getting into this new business of radio and podcasting. And it wouldn't be possible if people didn't listen, people like you. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, if you liked what you heard here, uh, download, subscribe, share it. If you'd like to reach out to me, wienerwabc at gmail.com is the best way to do it. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>